friend of mine from New York contacted me and he was asking if there was any way I could go to Third Man Records on Record Store Day here in Nashville and buy this Elvis album that they were re-releasing. It was Elvis's first ever recording. It was when he walked into Sun Records and recorded My Happiness as a gift for his mother. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I told him I wasn't going to stand out all night in line or anything, which I used to do back when I was a kid. You know, many people listening to this remembers the day of camping out the night before the concert so you could get in the first, second, or third row. I used to do that. But I thought if I could go out there and stand in line for maybe two hours, I'd go ahead and pick it up for him. And from there, I decided that there were two other friends of mine in England that might appreciate if I sent them a copy. I didn't, I wasn't going to buy one for myself because I'm not really a collector. I went there an hour before they opened, their third man, and stood in line. And then when they, they opened up, the line moved quite a bit. There was a really long line when I got there, probably six or seven blocks long. But it moved quite a bit when they first opened, and I thought, all right, I'll get in in maybe two hours. Two hours go by, I'm still standing there. Three hours go by, I'm still standing there, and there's a lot of homeless people who showed up, these drunk homeless men, and they were all laughing and pointing at all of us in line. (laughs) Said, you people are crazy. What are you doing? You people are crazy. And I think they were right. But I stood there, and I thought, I'm going to buy this. And then word was coming down the line that uh, you could only buy one copy. So I thought, all right, well, I'll buy the one. I can't get a couple for my friends in England, but I'll get the one for my buddy in New York, and he'll be happy. So I waited. Four hours go by. The line's still not moving. And I start realizing I have to drive five hours to St. Louis as soon as I get done here. And five hours went by. And there was rumors going down the line that they were out of records and the line wasn't moving. So I stood in line for five hours and I still wasn't even close to getting in. And I said, the hell with it. So I bailed and I didn't get the record for anybody. But I drove to St. Louis and when I got there, my best buddy Todd was waiting for me. And we met up at Euclid Records and we saw the Bottle Rockets do it in store there buddies of bottle rockets they'd contacted me and todd and asked if we would take some band photos of them they were fans of our photography and the i don't do band photos todd does but i don't do that sort of thing but the bottle rockets they're my buddies and they've been really really good to me over the years so i wanted to hook them up so we spent all the next day you know down on the riverfront there in st louis just hanging out and uh, taking pictures of our buddies it was a really really good time Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. 
My guest this week is Jim White. Jim is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Athens, Georgia. And you can find out everything you need to know about Jim at jimwhite.net. If you haven't heard episode 108 with Jim White, I think you should pause this or stop this right now and go back and listen to it. It's definitely one of my favorite episodes I've done, and I think it's one of the many high watermarks of this program. But on this episode, we're going to talk about Wrong-Eyed Jesus, everything that surrounded the album and surrounded the movie. If you haven't seen that movie, definitely look it up. It's really, really good and very interesting, and um, I think you will enjoy it. But having said that, I think we ought to jump right into part two. Jim White. Oh, uh, well, I used to watch cartoons, you know, after wrestling or before wrestling on Saturday morning, we would watch the, the old cartoons, and there was always a, a hillbilly that was blue running around the cartoons. And I, uh, you know, like the Walter Lands and the, the early Disney cartoons, and I always thought that was some cartoonist was taking some LSD back in the 30s or 40s or something. But somewhere along the way, I found out that, that there are people in Appalachia whose skin color is blue. Uh, and they, uh, they, they called them the blue people of Kentucky. And they're very insular. Uh, they're ostracized people because, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a rural realm with a, without a lot of sophistication. Um, so anybody that's that's different like that was was frequently uh, uh, you know put aside from the rest of the people because they were different. And, you know, it's like having a. Uh, I had a, a girlfriend who had a wine stained birthmark on her face, and and she was told in her Pentecostal church that it was a mark of the devil. So the, the I think the blue people were treated as the devil's spawn, and they ended up kind of keeping to themselves in in the hollers of Kentucky. A hemoglobin expert, you know a what I can't remember to call it, like a phrenologist, right? not a phrenologist, that's a head guy, but hemoglobin expert found out about it and decided to go down there, and he, he had a hard time finding them because they were very shy and skittish about uh, contact with people. Lonesome Creek was where they lived. If, I think that's where they lived, They're the Fugates. And uh, he eventually tracked them down and, and talked to them about their condition and took um, blood samples and then went back to his big fancy laboratory and tried to find out why their skin was blue. Clearly the blood underneath it was blue. Um, and he did a lot of research and then he found out in Russia there was a very similar uh, issue and Russian scientists had decided that there was a, an enzyme missing from their blood, just one enzyme. So he found a way to fabricate that enzyme. I don't know what, how, how you fabricate an enzyme, but he did. And he went down there and told them, I'd like to shoot some of this enzyme into your blood and see what happens. And they were very wary uh, that, that it would kill them. So the, the, the matriarch of the family, who I think was 85 years old and had been blue as a robin's egg her whole life, she finally agreed to let it be tested on her. And he gave her the injection, and 20 minutes later, her skin was a normal color. We're, we're all that close to being one way or the other. Um, so... It was such a beautiful, a beautiful story of how close we all are, even though we seem very different. We're all just one shot away from being connected. 
Was this a permanent cure or was this a uh, something they had to get regular shots after the fact? I can't remember if it was permanent or not. Um, it was an enzyme production issue. The two families, the Fugates were one, and I can't remember the other one, but the, when the two families got together, they just happened to coincide with genetic markers that created this uh, aberration in their, their blood enzyme levels. With, with David's handshake into the world, suddenly people understood me. Um, they, they didn't understand me before, but when they saw I was a protege of that guy who sort of acted like me but did it in a really cool way, I was suddenly viable as, as a, a person. And it was such a strange swing from being almost a pariah to being a darling. It, it was, it was, it was kind of confusing. Um, I, I, you know, I made that first record uh, out in California with a, a, an incredibly kind person named Paul Rabjohns who decided to work essentially for free. He let me use his studio for six weeks for free, you know, for the further, furthering the arc of redemption. You know, this, this Hollywood uh, music guy who should not have done it just said he believed in me. Um, it was really beautiful. We made, we made the record, and it was, when it was done, um, David listened to it and, and, and said, uh, well, this is a really good record, but it's really weird, and people aren't going to understand it unless you give them a handshake. And then he walked out of the room. <laughs> it's like talk, talking to Yoda or something, you know? <laughs> and uh, so Yale was with me, and I said, you know, what the hell does he mean, a handshake? And he said, I don't know. So I went home and I thought about it and I thought, you know, I went to, I went to film school. I talked my way into that NYU film school and nobody liked my films except the people who knew the struggles that I'd had. People that knew the struggles that I had loved my films. So I thought, okay, the handshake is giving them some sort of conduit of understanding to what this material that I'm offering them is. So I need, I need to introduce myself to, to music listeners. How can I do that? The music should be enough, but it's not. So I wrote a short story. I thought people will understand this. You know, I was trying to sort of, sort of a, a, a simple nutshell explain why I ended up in the position I was in to write these songs. So I wrote this short story uh, called "The Mysterious Tale of How I Shouted Wrong at Jesus," and it's it's a, an unusual story. Uh, most of it's true. It's kind of two two true stories that came together by necessity, and. I showed it to David and said, is this the handshake you were talking about? And he read it and he said, yes, that's it. Uh, we'll hand that over to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers? He said, well, Warner Brothers is our parent company and they have to agree on everything. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the people who sent me the letter saying, dear sir, we've received your tape. We feel the material is very weak. We have no interest in having any further contact with you. Do not contact us again. We're now apparently huge fans of mine. <laughs> Welcome to the music industry. <laughs> For, further arcs of redemption. Let me tell you something. I laid on the floor laughing. I was laughing so hard when the, the name Warner Brothers came up in relation to this. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. What a great movie this is. You know, if you stick with your life long enough, it can turn into a really great movie. So Warner Brothers didn't want to put the story in there because it cost money. 14 page story and they said no you got to put the normal stuff in there like musicians who played on the record and song lyrics and 
And I, I, I was focused at that point. I said, nope, the story goes in or we don't make the record. We don't put it out. And, you know, the Warner Brothers people sort of were divided about it. You know, here I am. Warner Brothers is, is dividing into factions because, <laughs> because of this uh, thing I've thrown into their, their spinning spoke, the little stick that I threw into the spinning spokes of this giant music corporation. And eventually we, we, we won and it got in, the story got in. Off it went into the world and these British filmmakers read, read the story and decided they wanted me to write a feature film for them. So they contacted me and said, and you know, I, I have a degree in filmmaking. So it felt like my crazy, all these years of disparate crazy behavior suddenly made sense. Like I was following some intuitive path that even though it seemed completely disconnected, there was, there was a meaning to everything and a purpose to everything that I was doing. And it was clearly not my design, you know. I was just following currents that were carrying me where I needed to go. So they contacted me and said they wanted me to write a feature film and they wanted to meet with me about it. And the story is all internal monologue. And I know enough about making films to know that internal monologue is very hard to, to depict cinematically. So I said, well, that's really not a good idea. And I think, you know, I was just trying to be honest. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the Hollywood culture, if someone says they want to take a meeting with you, you put on your best suit and your cologne and you go and you take the meeting. And because I resisted, that made me more attractive. So they kept calling me and saying, we really want to come. And I said, all right, we'll come, but I don't think that that's a feature film. Maybe I can write another feature film for you. You know, my, my first record was out and I was working on my second record and, and I was all for talking to people. And I have to say, they... They're lovely people. Uh, very. One of them looks like David Bowie, and the other one looks like Frodo from the The Hobbit. And they're a really unlikely couple. They're very. Both of them smart and and funny and offbeat. And so they they wanted to, f to explore the South a little bit before they talked to me, so that they would have a, a foundation for their for their discussions. Because they love this story uh, about this weird religious experience I had when I was a teenager. And so they. They flew into New Orleans and they rented a motorhome and they drove all the back roads all the way to Pensacola. And somewhere along the way, they um, stopped at a swamp because they'd never been in a swamp before. And they thought how beautiful it was. And they thought, let's take some of this swamp ambiance and decorate our motorhome with it. So they put Spanish moss all over the interior of, the, <laughs> of their motorhome. I mean, they, it was hanging from the rearview mirror. It was everywhere. And... Um, they, they called me and said, yes, we'll be arriving soon. Um, so happy to meet you. And they got out of the motorhome and they were scratching <laughs> like crazy. And I saw the Spanish moss hanging in there and they were scratching. And I said, fellas, what do you have that stuff hanging in your motorhome for? And they said, well, to get in the mood of the South. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know that in that moss, there's a tiny red parasite called a, a red bug. And that's why you're scratching. <laughs> How really? I say, well, what should we do? So I took them inside and gave them fingernail polish. And, they dive in there, and then they had to clean out the motor at home. And I thought, well, these are the two biggest fools I've ever met. They kept talking about this film they wanted to make. And 
I kept uh, saying, there's no film in this story. I'm sorry, you're mistaken. And, and you know, you've come all this way for nothing. And so I decided if, if, they, if they were willing to put Spanish moss in their motorhome, they might be willing to do other fun stuff. So I started taking them to Pentecostal churches and uh, tell them to go up the front when the altar call was taking place. <laughs> and go up front. You can hear things better up there. <laughs> and they'd go up there. You know, one of them was, literally was dressed in, in a European jet set equestrian jodhpurs with tall leather boots. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was like exotic fresh meat to the, you know, those Pentecostal churches where the same six people walk up and get saved every week. Well, now they had these two foreigners up there wanting to get saved, and they were jumping on them and laying hands on them. And <laughs> I took them to a bunch of churches like that and, uh, you know, drove them around town and introduced them to my friend Jimmy Tuck, who's a shade tree mechanic. And that day he was working on a car and he couldn't get the muffler off, so he put a chain around it and attached it to his monster truck and just rolled the car upside down so that he could get the muffler off. <laughs> and at that point they said, we're not making anything other than a documentary. This is, this is much, much better than anything we could write. So they decided they were going to make a film. They went back to the BBC and said, we want to make a film about uh, music and storytelling in the South. And they presented... You know, when you pitch to big big corporations, you know, like you know, the movie movie companies, they were pitching to the BBC. You know, you have character breakdowns. You have thing, a thing called a Bible, which has character breakdowns, arc, uh, you know, synopsis, uh, budget, all these different things. They handed the BBC one piece of paper, and it had a circle on it, and it had five archetypal Southern settings with arrows pointing from one to the next: the church, the farm. Uh, the town, this, they handed them to that, and the BBC people were completely intrigued and said, go make your film. So they did their research, they're, they're smart people, and they had a really beautiful guiding principle was that no matter what material they gathered, they would not put anybody in the film that they did not respect and feel love for. And they, you know, they interviewed a lot of crazy, mean rednecks um, who didn't make it into the film. And they interviewed a lot of people who were rough around the edges in many ways, but they felt some kinship with them. And the film is all about, it's their sort of their love letter to the South. Um, and people frequently mistake that I made the film. I didn't make the film. Uh, if I'd have made the film, there would have been all this crazy talk like I'm, I'm talking now. They, they made the film and had very specific ideas of the, the love and affection that they wanted to show that they had for the South. And it was so beautiful because, you know, you talk about arcs of redemption, like riding through my town, David Burns tour bus. I could suddenly look at the South because I, I wanted to leave this place because it was killing me from a young age. All of a sudden I could see it through their eyes and I could see all these people that I would probably have avoided. I could see uh, with compassion um, th this world, which I had become very, very uh, uh, inured to and, and, and somewhat jaded about. So it was a really beautiful experience in, in many, many ways. We shot for two weeks. It wasn't, wasn't a long time. We just got in the car and rode around and talked to people. Um, there was never any script. The quote-unquote writer of the, the film, Steve Haseman, just would listen very carefully to things that I'd say and listen to what other people would say. And then he'd say, let's build on that. 
And he's so funny because he's, he's not a good interviewer. He's a really good writer. But he'd be riding in the car and he'd say, yes, uh, well, hmm, fighting. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did something like that to Harry Cruz and Harry Cruz grabbed him by the neck and said, spit it out, motherfucker, I'm dying of cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and he started strangling him. He was strangling him. And af afterwards, Steve was so delighted that he had been strangled by Harry Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> so they're really lovely people. They're friends to this day. Um, and that film really seemed to resonate with people. And what was, what was most, uh, you know, again, Arcs of Redemption, we were, in, we were in a prison, and I was hearing prisoners tell the same story of how they ended up being disenfranchised by culture, the same story that I thought was personal to me. You know, the, the whole dichotomy in the South is very extremist view of you're in the church or you're in sin. Church or sin, church or sin. And when I started hearing the prisoners, uh, some of them doing life for murder, uh, say, well, uh, you know, I tried, I tried being good, but it was too hard, so I just went and sinned, uh, a la Flannery O'Connor's, uh, you know, wise blood or, or uh, a good man is hard to find. I realized that, that there, I grew up in an environment that was very polarizing, and that really helped me understand a lot of my struggles uh, making the film. Well, the filmmakers, you know, they, they, they were funded by the BBC, so they were beholden to them. Uh, BBC wanted David Johansson in, in the film, and filmmakers didn't feel like he fit because he wasn't Southern, you know, he's from the New York Dolls. But he had done that Harry Smith anthology, and they, it, it was very popular at the time, and they thought that it would be a good idea, so they insisted that he appear in the film. Filmmakers just wanted to put musicians in there that they liked, so they loved The Handsome Family, and they loved Johnny Dowd, and they loved me. I, I ended up getting M Melissa Swingle involved because I, I realized that it was just a bunch of crazy white cracker men, for the most part, uh, David Eugene Edwards, you know, uh, ta talented musicians, but there wasn't a feminine voice in it. So uh, they, they wanted to get Cat Power in there, and we, they chased her around, but never could find her. And I knew Melissa Swingle from Trailer Bride. I don't know if you remember that band. Um, and she was interesting. She, she told some good stories, and she did add a feminine touch right when the movie was starting to really get too narrow for its own good. So we just, we kind of, it was kind of all done in a sort of a hasty way. We just called everyone up and said, can you come for a couple of days here, or a couple of days there? And, and they came. And uh, it, was, it was interesting touring around with it, taking it all around the world. Um, the best question we ever got asked, because there was Q&A after the movie, you know, people are very interested in, and drawn to the South. It's sort of like the soul of, of the nation in a way. The best question was completely a non sequitur. Uh, at Tribeca Film Festival in New York, after it was over, people were asking, well, why are there no African-Americans in it? Why is this? You know, all valid questions. And the guy raised his hand and he said, what percentage of the U.S. military do you think is from the South? And I, I had no idea. So I said, I have no idea. Why? And he said, well, if it's a large percentage and these religious sin dichotomy people are being sent as our ambassadors to the world, then that's an interesting dynamic in terms of history and the Crusades and tensions between other religions. And wow, 
that that hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, yeah, and it turns out that a great percentage of our nation is, or our nation's army is Christian and Southern. So all of a sudden, you think, oh, I'm, we're taking a Southern Christian army to Iraq, and we're we're having them control a bunch of Muslims. Whoa, that's that's a loaded proposition, indeed. So uh, that that was an interesting point, and then and then I found the second corollary to it. Uh, I went back home right after that, and I was at a pizza parlor out in the country. It's like this little funny little pizza parlor in a little town uh, north of Athens. And there's this little pimply faced kid, maybe 18 years old, who brought me my pizza after it was cooked. Uh, my daughter went to school right by there, and I was taking her there for pizza. And uh, I tried to talk to everybody, and he handed me the pizza. He looked kind of glum, and I said, what you so glum about, man? And he said, uh, oh, you know, got to leave home a couple days. And so I said, uh, where are you going? And he said, oh, Army, I'm going to ship off to Iraq in a month. And I said, how come you doing that? that was when the Iraq war was raging. How come you doing that? He said, oh, I got caught stealing a car. Judge told me I could either spend two years in, in the joint or join the Army. And I said, wow, is that common? He said, oh, yeah, it's pretty common. You got your choice, the Army or prison. So then you think about, you know, I have nothing but respect for our, our military, but you think about the context of, of who we're sending into the most volatile regions in the world, and uh, it certainly gives a new perspective to some of the tensions that, that exist. I've, I've watched it. Yeah, so Cowboy Bob Kelly uh, and Mike the California Hippie Boyette, those were... You know, they had wrestling in, in Pensacola, and I was, I was a boy. I was, I was not the, the, the most masculine boy, and so I think that kids like that are frequently attracted to hyper-masculine realms to, to try to compensate. So <laughs> muscle cars and wrestling were, were pretty important to me. <laughs> Did you ever go see any live events? I was poor. I, I couldn't afford to do that, uh, but we'd watch on TV. Um, and that was about the only way that I that I saw. But we we had a lot of fun following them, and and back then it was it was so campy and so you, you couldn't take it seriously in the least bit. It's somehow transitioned or trans transposed itself into sort of pornography. It's now very pornographic wrestling. Um, so it's a different experience. Back then it was just fun watching people pick people up and throw throw them across the room <laughs> and and act goofy, you know. Like, well, I want to do that. I don't want to act goofy like Mike the California hippie boy at. <laughs> I think there's a lot of parallels to music with the pro, <laughs> pro wrestling. <laughs> there's a lot of theater involved. and <laughs> Yeah, and nudity. Theater nudity. <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly a part of our culture back then that when it disappeared, I thought, well, that's gone and it'll never come back. Yeah. Funny how that those things recycle in... in sort of sensationalized form that's our culture is all about going back to some baseline uh, experience and just making it louder uh, ra rather than refining and becoming more sophisticated it's like no 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 we're just gonna make it louder <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you meeting up with me here in this hotel room 
it's beautiful to, to see you again. Well, come to Athens sometimes and visit. If you're, if you're ever down there, I got a nice place you can stay. Beautiful. I look forward to it. Man. All right, man. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jim for meeting up with me in that hotel room in South Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Jim at jimwhite.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.